Welcome to the Ornstein and Chapman podcast on The Athletic. Coming up today, our Manchester United writer Laurie Whitwell joins us to discuss a fascinating piece that goes deep into the Glazers' 15-year reign at Old Trafford, plus more on Project Restart as we look at the challenges faced by Premier League players to be ready for an intense period with The Athletic's Sarah Shepard and a former top-flight physiotherapist and I'll answer some of your questions sent in via social media. It's the last chance you'll have to take advantage of our 90-day free access to all the great articles over on The Athletic by heading to theathletic.com forward slash Ornstein and Chapman. The offer ends on Thursday, May the 28th. Now, it's exactly 15 years since the controversial Glazer takeover of Manchester United. And in typical athletic fashion, we've done a deep dive into that very subject. I must say, it is an absolutely essential read. Uh, There's more detail in that piece than I've read uh, anywhere for a long time and quite a few new lines within the piece as well. It's been written by Laurie Whitwell with contributions from Adam Crafton, Danny Taylor, Ollie Kay and Matt Slater. Delighted that Laurie is with us now. Laurie, tell us a bit more about this piece and certainly the relationship right from the start between the Glazers and Manchester United or English football presented a real culture clash. Um, And the piece begins with a very revealing anecdote. It does indeed, yeah. Thanks for for the big sell there, David. Hopefully people, (laughs) hopefully it lives up to lives up to the billing yeah Brian Glazer the, the very first game against Brecon which is this Champions League match in 2005 Wayne Rooney scores early on seven minutes in and he asks what happens to the ball and the person that was telling me this sort of said it in a bit of an American accent to kind of give me the full picture and the reaction from everybody in the director's box was kind of you know quizzical confusion maybe a few sniggers and basically his idea was that would you not get that ball get Rooney to sign it and then sell it as they I believe do in the NFL or in baseball you know home runs or touchdowns so that was kind of where he was coming from and, and it didn't really happen you know David Gill said well they, they, they get the ball and they put it back on the on the centre spot and it, it was you know something that wasn't really you know taken up um, maybe it, maybe it could be done but I think it sort of speaks to the fact that the Glazers arrived into English football with a very different mindset to how the game could be marketed and this was just a, a prime example there were, there were loads of these kind of little ideas I'm told that that went you know throughout the, the club at the time could we do this could we do that um, obviously the macro idea was their commercial strategy which um, has obviously grown the club hugely and was a different uh, approach to what the club were doing at the time which was actually looking to streamline their sponsors so they, they would perhaps have three four five sponsors where they had really good relationships with them and they would that would mean that the value of, of those um, sponsorships was, was increased the Glazers looked at it a different way and thought well there's hundreds of companies in the world that nobody's ever heard of you know if they're associated with Manchester United that will, they, they will want that and so that's what they did they aggressively targeted lots of companies around the world and at the moment I think they've got 61 sponsors so and, and that has been a model that has been copied by other clubs so definitely a different approach but one that you know has benefited Manchester United in terms of their commercial revenue. The Glazers have personally received close to £200 million from the club since spending £270 million in the overall £790 million leveraged takeover of Manchester United. And that really does anger sections of the United fan base, especially when you look across the city to Manchester City. Mm. 
I think even if you look at Liverpool as well, you know, their owners, FSG, certainly aren't in it for charity, but they have put about £100 million into the club, I believe. So the, the, the perception from Manchester United fans is certainly that the Glazers have taken money from the club. Another figure we mention is uh, £1.5 billion as, as around the, the mark for how much the Glazers' ownership has cost United. So that's in terms of the £500 million debt that's on the club right now. The interest payments that you know, we're on that debt year after year for over 15 years and also the advisory fees um, for different reasons to do with the takeover. So it's it's a lot of money and that money would have been in the club without them um, doing that with the, with the leverage takeover. Now they might argue the commercial revenue would not have grown. You know, they, they have added three billion pounds of value to the club, for example, uh, because of their um, commercial strategy. But I would argue that, well, if they ever sell the club, that three million pounds doesn't go to Manchester United. It will go to the Glazers so it's not necessarily the club benefiting fans you know vehemently protested the fact that they were going to leverage the club so much and they thought that the government should have stepped in and should have stopped it for example in the NFL um, there is a flat rate 350 million dollar um, allowance for leverage in, in clubs when you when you take them over and the average value of a, an NFL franchise is about 2.7 billion so that equates to around 12% of the club the Glazers leverage 66% of the club and so for them to you know take dividends year after year they've, they've taken more dividends obviously this time and, and in, in companies that that works you know that that's just a, a standard practice but if a company makes revenue the direct the, the the shareholders get dividends um, but clearly it will be something that is scrutinized if is we if we look at the impacts of uh, of coronavirus crisis um, and how it, it develops they're, they're going to get another dividend in June because it was already arranged but beyond that there's yet no plans have been made and um, I, I do wonder if that will be something that they look at given the crisis that we're currently involved in do they not see the image that that portrays the optics of taking dividends at a time like this they would argue and i can understand that the dividends were uh, agreed in november um, and paid in january so this is well before the coronavirus crisis equally okay. the next set of dividends well but also the next set of dividends is going out in june so they, they could have potentially looked at that but I think once they'd again agreed to it just before the start of uh, the coronavirus crisis you know that is something that they don't feel they can go back on in fact I think it's it may even be uh, law that they have to enact on this and we do have to give them credit obviously they never looked at furloughing their staff or anything like that but equally they have also um, deferred uh, VAT to, to UK taxpayer for, for which is equivalent to about 10 million pounds for a year now they will say the UK taxpayer will get that eventually you know it'll be next year uh, but it is a coronavirus um, sort of stipulation that the government produced to, to help those companies that couldn't afford to pay their VAT. Whereas you might argue, if you can afford to pay your dividends to shareholders, you, you can afford to pay tax to the UK government. Mm. Ownership involvement and finances is, I guess, one of the most divisive issues across clubs. We shouldn't just dress that up as a Manchester United issue. There have been questions asked of. Um, Joe Lewis at Tottenham, especially around mm. their decision to furlough, given his personal wealth and the you know the Cronky family have never put any money into Arsenal and been paid money in consultancy fees. So uh, and and you can look across the league and ask similar questions and 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 even very different questions about what's potentially happening at Newcastle at the moment. But the overriding theme of what you've talked about so far is not matters on the pitch. We're talking about money, we're talking about business. And all the way through your piece, I couldn't get away from this feeling 
of finances and business and commercials and barely talking about issues on the pitch which show what has dominated the Glazer reign at Manchester United. Now, there is mention of the criticism within the piece, but from a business standpoint, they are admired in some quarters, aren't they? Yeah, I think you have to look at the fact that they're still um, looking like they, they've got good conversations going on in terms of their shirt sponsor for, for 2021. The Chevrolet deal um, expires at that point and, and it sounds like um, they're going to be able to produce another good shirt sponsorship deal, irrespective of the fact that we're obviously in a slump right now. United still control the eyeballs, so that's why companies still want to be linked to them. Um, I think they have clearly taken, uh, you know, the, the approach that they took did take a lot of energy and, and took a lot of drive. So I think you have to accept that. And also other clubs have, you know, followed that that model. Now in the commercial revenue has um, sort of flatlined for the last four or five years. Other clubs are catching up, Manchester City, Liverpool notably. They are, they're still quite a way behind on that front, but, you know, the, the, their curve is going upwards, whereas United is, is staying uh, the same. And one of the points made was, do you dilute the brand by associating yourself with so much? And also, if you're not winning, do do um, companies still want to be associated with you? So that's where the football um, side does come into it. You know, if you're not in the Champions League, for example, if you're not winning titles and, and cups, does do, 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 will that eventually take a hit on the commercial front and it's something I guess we'll only know in, in the years to come People listening to this will want some insight into the Glazers obviously Malcolm Glazer passed away I think it was in 2014 but his uh, his children essentially run Manchester United can you tell us a bit more about them their involvement and how it actually affects matters with the likes of Ed Woodward and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer Yes, yeah, so Joel Glazer very much described as the most hands-on Glazer. In fact, he's, he's probably the only one that is really involved with the club um, at present. Um, said he works eight hours a day. His office in Washington DC has a lot of United um, memorabilia and, and um, nods to historical achievements. There's a big George Best um, uh, portrait in his in the boardroom. There's um, a, a portrait of the. Manchester United v Manchester City derby from 2008 when they didn't have any shirt sponsors um, in tribute to the 50 years since the Munich air disaster. So clearly there's there's an affection there and that is a, a, a strong theme of, of what I was told by people sort of working with the club. He, he speaks to Ed Woodward daily, I'm told, sometimes more than once a day. And also he does take an interest in the signings. He wants to drill down into the uh, the data analysis that that is produced for each signing, which has then led to, I guess, you know, uh, transfers taking longer. Um, the Bruno Fernandes deal, for instance, um, you know, I'm led to believe that was one where they were looking at the price. Is it worth it, given what he might bring? He, you know, so Joel Glazer does want to know that kind of stuff. I'm led to believe that Brian Glazer steps away uh, from United a bit more in 2015 when he got married. Um, Avram Glazer is, is has been to uh, matches this season. In fact, he's the only one of the Glazer siblings to have been to the um, to a match this season. Um, and and then Malcolm, I mean, when he uh, took over the club, I do think it was it was Joel, Brian, and, and Avi that were the ones that you know really wanted to to make it work. Malcolm was obviously the, the, the patriarch, um, but I don't think he ever had intentions of, of getting involved with the club, really. He, I'm told he's never set foot in, inside Old Trafford. Numerous people say that they had never met him um, you know, exec- at executive level. So um, it, it is interesting, his relationship with, with sport. And I, I do have a, an interview with a journalist called John, uh, Alan St. John, rather, sorry, who was interviewed by Malcolm Glazer in 2000 over a potential um, autobiography, I guess. Um, and he, he, he sort of said to me that he was 
was surprised that the Tampa Bay Buccaneers didn't really get a mention. He'd interviewed uh, numerous NFL owners um, previously and, and usually they, you couldn't shut them up about their, their franchises, whereas Malcolm didn't seem that involved with it. It was more about um, his life uh, growing up and how he had managed to make his money and, and, and you know shown hard work in terms of, um, you know, b- fixing watches was, was one of his, his prides and, and then, you know, renovating them and, and selling them on for, for a profit. So that was what, what more the conversation was about. But it just it just made me interested in, in that that was something that happened in 2000. And, and then obviously the club, he, he bought the club in 2005. So his affection for sport perhaps never really was totally apparent, um, more the business side of things, which I guess, as you say, explains why a lot of the piece is, is about the financials. The Manchester United transfer business of late has been quite impressive from where I see it. However, when you look at those making the key decisions around recruitment at other clubs, I'm thinking Manchester City, Liverpool, for example, um, either Joel Glazer has his finger on the pulse and knows a hell of a lot about football, or he shouldn't be getting involved to the extent and the depth that he is if it's causing delays that that are making Manchester United lose out to some of their Premier League and European rivals in the transfer market. Mm, it's a good point. And, and that's something that I think some people who are aware of the situation would, would say that is a criticism. That is, is that the right thing to be doing? He would say, you know, he along with his siblings owns the club so you know I'm not going to sign a cheque if I don't know what it's for particularly if it's something for 80 million euros as as Bruno uh, Fernandes might end up being um, but I, I'd, I'd take that point I think maybe you know I don't know I've not been in, in, in the rooms when it's all been happening but I would imagine that if you can allow staff at clubs on the, the day-to-day basis a bit more latitude then that might quicken the pace because certainly you, you look at Liverpool and when they signed Minamino you know on, on the 1st of January um, and United clearly needed to sign somebody in January that that creative spark why was it not until late January that it, that it happened you know you, if that then does impact on the football side of things I wonder if that's something that needs to be looked at but then again Again, Joel Glazer might say no. I want to know exactly what I'm I'm signing up for when I when I buy a player. And listen, United do have very strong structures, and as you say, I think they've had a really good recent track record with signings. I think Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has a, has a big part to play in that. Um, they have scouting strands to things. They have a management side with, with Solskjaer at the, at the head, and and they get together. They basically decide on the players they want. Um, if either side doesn't want that player, they can have a they can they can void it, um, and then it's up to Edward Wood and, and Matt Judge to go and negotiate it. And then ultimately they propose it to, to Joel, and, and he sort of says yes or no. And, and I think that's that's how it works. I mean, listen, owners at all clubs will sign off on on deals, won't they? Um, you know, they they want to know where the money's going. It's not you know unique to Manchester United, but it is interesting that he he does have you know that kind of keen interest in in, in that um, side of things. A few quick questions, uh, although I must admit, not particularly easy ones. Um, Old Trafford, are they going to revamp it? Is it going to turn into Manchester United world or has that been mothballed? Yeah, I mean, this is a, a big criticism of them that they haven't um, developed the area around Old Trafford as, you know, um, Abu Dhabi have with the Etihad. Um, I'm led to believe that at the start of their takeover, they did want to do something with the stadium but as time has gone on the cost of that 
for what they would get back in return is not seen to be something that is really uh, particularly prudent. Um, United would point out that they have um, spent 20 million, I think, on stadium renovations, including 11 million on disabled facilities that will uh, will come into play soon. Um, so I think that is fair. Um, but equally, you know, you you speak to people and and the. The Old Trafford does look tired in parts and there's certainly areas of it that could be renovated if not necessarily stadium expansion even though they, they could expand the stadium and still get a full house certainly but at the moment it doesn't seem like it's something that they are particularly um, interested in doing. And I think a question that many people would ask off the back of the piece is whether there would be any appetite to sell from the Glazers in, in the coming years uh, they've been linked with Saudi Arabian interest Manchester United mm. various others over the years what's the status of play on that yeah big question isn't it I mean that's the one that I guess people are most interested in um, there was uh, obviously talk of the Red Knights in 2010 but I don't think that got really very far uh, I think Qatar got mooted with a bid uh, 1.5 billion and as we've seen as we've seen the, the value has just gone up so that that, that wasn't going to get done um, Saudi Arabia was obviously the most recent um, sort of potential I, I suppose and we've seen that they are interested in getting into the Premier League and, and clearly now with Newcastle United you know if that goes through as we expect that would then put an end to any chance of them buying Manchester United we, we're led to believe that those talks did develop into potential for Saudi Arabia buying into Manchester United but that the Glazers were only ever prepared to give up 20% of the club United refute this or, or this characterisation they, they suggest that actually the talks were only ever about sponsorship opportunities um, Richard Arnold went out there um, about in November uh, so that was where those kind of stories originated from so obviously with these things there's always give and take you know you, they're never going to come out and say oh yes we had talks on, on takeover because why would they it's a private matter there was something certainly there but I think the takeaway from it all is that the Glazers do seem to be in it for the long haul aren't necessarily interested in, in selling anytime soon and even then if they were who out there could afford the club you know you look at nation states like Saudi Arabia is that really what Manchester United want as fans you know um, equally is there going to be a wealthy individual um, could a collection of individuals come together it would take a lot of coordination a lot of cash a lot of compromise to do that which is sort of where I finished the piece so it, it just it's difficult to see exactly now where that comes from you know if, if, if they are to sell the club and that value just finally is why Manchester United presumably, or in part, are in a much better position than many clubs coming through this crisis. I think you allude to the idea that they're fairly well insulated to cope with the suspension of Premier League action. Yeah, I believe so. I mean, you look at commercial revenue and that's where they get most of their uh, revenue from. In fact, actually, match day revenue has, has stayed pretty um, flat for sort of 10 years, primarily because they haven't raised ticket prices in that time. They did raise ticket prices when they first came in, but then changed plan and, and kept them the same. And I think there's, there's probably pretty reasonable you know, ticket values in, in the stadium that you can still get now. So yeah, the commercial factor is, is, a, is a big reason why they are insulated. And also the fact that they do have have these relationships with banks means that they can get loans at a decent rate and, and they revealed in the latest quarterly that they have 150 million pounds kind of credit card I suppose a credit facility to to use if they uh, if they wish um, alongside the 90 million pounds in cash that they've still got um, which has taken a hit over the last year because they, they paid for the Harry Maguire fee up front and there was a bit of Bruno uh, money in that as well from from the cash reserves but clearly you know if you, if you add those two things together 240 million pounds worth is a decent ability 
to, to have to spend, albeit, you know, with, with the 150 million credit facility, that would then, I guess, mean more debt. So is that really the wisest thing? But listen, it's it's there for them to use. And I think ultimately the commercial pull that they still have um, does, yeah, as you say, incubate them a little bit more than other clubs. Laurie, thank you. You've burned out my calculator uh, for the day. I'm going to have to buy a new one. But that was excellent. And if you want to hear even more of Laurie, you can check out the Talk of the Devils podcast also on The Athletic. But for now, thanks very much, mate. Thanks, David. Well, it seems at the moment, like we're saying, every week is a critical week in terms of the resumption of professional football in England and beyond. Uh, But this one really is because not only will testing continue in the next couple of days in, in the Premier League and in the EFL, the championship clubs will be getting back to training, but some crucial meetings will will be taking place because on Wednesday, the Premier League clubs will vote on whether they move on to phase two of the return to training protocols, which involves contact and while the first phase, which was social, socially distant training, was um, always likely to be a, a formality with the clubs voting unanimously in favour of that and that having taken place for about a week now, phases two and three are always, were always going to be more difficult because certain players who are not prepared to have contact, who have fears around contracting or spreading the virus even if they've tested negative in in the Premier League's testing uh, may have some reservations over this so this really is a crucial moment I do expect it to go through um We've heard government guidance that would allow it to uh, as of the start of this week. Uh, And people I speak to within the Premier League say that should go through and they'll move on to contact training. It will be very interesting to see how that pans out. But then on Thursday, uh, there will also be some very important discussions over a possible date to resume the season. It was initially penciled in for around the 12th of June. Looks like that could well be put back now to the 19th or even the 26th. The fixture list are the outstanding fixtures in terms of games in hand going to be played first or will we just pick up with the Premier League season where it left off and try and get the rest of the games completed as planned? The broadcast rebate, I think there's going to be a vote on how much money the Premier League club should agree to settle on with the broadcasters for what they owe back for uh, the broadcasters essentially not getting the product that they paid for. The venues that these matches are going to be played at, will they be at home and away grounds like normal or will they be at neutral venues, all of course behind closed doors? And also the possibility of curtailment and if the season does need to be curtailed then how will it be resolved on such as a points per game basis or another method to make sure that the league table uh, reaches a a final conclusion of sorts so lots to be um, sorted out there are also loads of meetings going on with players with managers uh, decision time in the EFL with leagues one two as well needing to be settled Uh, but what about the players will the players be physically ready well the athletic Sarah Shepard asked this very question in a fantastic and very detailed piece on the athletic you can have a read of it and Sarah joins us now Sarah thanks for coming on you spoke to a professor who co-authored a scientific commentary on the factors involved in returning to elite football after COVID-19 or amid it we could say Uh, what was his opinion? Yeah hi David the guy I spoke to is a gentleman called Magni Moore who's a a professor in in tracking testing and and training in elite football at the University of Southern Denmark Um, and the commentary that he and his colleagues have put together is basically uh, laying out the challenges that, that are facing clubs in this kind of unprecedented situation. 
his main fear, I suppose is the right word, is that the coaches are going to find themselves in, in what he called a, a catch-22 situation, which is that they'll be caught between knowing that they've got a very short amount of time in which to prepare players for comp- competitive play. So feeling that pressure to ramp things up quickly, but also knowing that the players don't have the right foundations in place, possibly to be able to do that safely. So his fear was that you know this might force teams to, to train too hard compared to where the players are physically. Mm. And we've seen in Germany, they've they've come back to competitive action. We don't know the full scale of, of the physical impact. And one of the really interesting phrases you use is football fitness. Can you just explain to the listeners what you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's about um, specificity is the word that you'll probably hear most coaches talk about at the moment. Because um, obviously we, we know, you know, we've seen on Instagram that p- players have been keeping themselves fit at home. You know, they've been provided with spin bikes um some dumbbells, you know, they've probably been out running. But the problem is when you don't play the game that you're training for, you don't have that specific movement pattern that, that you would have in football. Um, and, and football is one of those sports which is quite chaotic in its nature, really. You know, you're, mm. you're not moving in the same ways all the time at the same speed. You're reacting to other people around you. So there's, you know, there's explosivity, there's unpredictable movements. It's it quite chaotic and it's very difficult to train yourself for that um, when you're on your own <laughs> or without yeah. being around other players. Yeah, I mean, they've never really had a length of period off of football like this, not even in pre-season. And not only that, and I think a, a, a real, really important point that your piece makes is that there was no return date known about in pre-season or any breaks like a winter break. You would always know when you're coming back. So many medical departments had no idea how they should prepare their players for the resumption. Did, was it only going to be a couple of weeks so they maintain a high intensity of training at, at home? Was it going to be a long period of time and so they actually give them some time off essentially a holiday at home and I know some players who were spending a lot of downtime with their their partners and children during the lockdown I spoke to a couple of coaches about a week ago and they said that the phase one resumption of training was really all about changes of direction and a bit of fitness because they're acutely concerned about the possibility of picking up injuries at this stage Uh, my information is that a number of clubs have already picked up soft tissue injuries hopefully nothing too drastic to to work uh, to worry about but they it is going to give headaches I heard that Tottenham had picked up three or four soft tissue injuries Liverpool had picked up one on the first day of training so the fact here, here Sarah is that many players and managers will be concerned about the levels that they can and can't reach in this period of time and the possibility of picking up those those issues. Yeah, um, one of the other the people that I spoke to for the piece is a guy called um, Steve Tastian, who I think spent about six years at Everton as head of performance and now works for the US men's national team. Um, and his thinking was that it will probably be around the three-week mark in terms of three weeks back to competitive play that we will start to see these soft tissue injuries coming in. And, and both both him and, and their professor um, felt that, you know, the likelihood is that the type of injuries we'll see will be sort of groin adductor issues. Um, and that's all to do with that that rapid change in direction that you spoke about, which is is really hard to train for um, unless you're in that, that match play situation. Um, so, of course, you know, managers 
and players are concerned about the, the risk to injuries. And we know that that risk of injury is going to be higher because, especially because they're going to be playing um, lots of games within a short period of time. I think Steve Bruce in particular, a number of players have spoken out, Raheem Sterling in particular, on needing the right amount of time because we're dealing with athletes' bodies here. And as such, I'm delighted to say we're joined by Luke Anthony. He's a physio who has led the medical departments at the likes of Reading, Watford and been a first-team physio at Gloucester Rugby. His most recent role, though, was at Norwich City as an injury prevention specialist, which makes him perfect for this discussion. Luke is with us now. Luke, thank you very much for joining us. Is it possible to measure football fitness, as Sarah explains, as a percentage? Yeah, thanks, David. Um, I think broadly speaking, you can get an idea of a player's football fitness levels. Um, I think the concept of football-specific fitness is a sort of multi-dimensional concept and it involves a combination of different factors your aerobic fitness, um, your ability to run fast, your ability to repeatedly run fast with your speed endurance, uh, your ability to accelerate, decelerate, change direction, your agility. So you can put tests in place for sort of each of these areas, um, but I think at best I'll give you an indication rather than a precise measure of what a player's fitness is. I think a lot of people listening to this, Luke, will will simply want to know if, if we're going to see a spate of injuries, they'll be worried. I, I think there was some research done in the USA around NFL in 2011 when there was a player's strike. Uh, in the lead up to that period, there were a small number of uh, Achilles tendon ruptures. In a period of weeks afterwards, I think there were 10. So a disproportionate amount of Achilles uh, ruptures after that. That's just one example. There's loads of research out there. But are you expecting to see some quite serious uh, injury concerns arising? If we look at the lesson from from German football, they're obviously a couple of weeks ahead. And um, their injury rate was up by about 250% in terms of what you would have expected for uh, the injuries prior to the lockdown. And mostly muscle injuries on that side of it. I think what was interesting is also their stats, their their their, their metrics on their um, outputs were pretty much within the distances that they had been meeting prior to the um, to the lockdown, which would be surprising in some respects. I think some of that can be accounted for by uh, the fact that they have an extra substitution, so that makes up that stats. But I think it also shows that players having to get that output that they were previously having will, will come at a cost as well. And specifically, I think, within the muscle injuries that we've seen so far in those games. 250%. Yeah, I think it works out. You'd normally expect about 0.24 injuries per match uh, in, a, in a Bundesliga game. And I think they looked at it as 0.8 something. So it works out as, you know, a sort of threefold, just under a threefold increase in that, that, that range or just over a threefold increase in that range. So, um, I mean, you know, it's a small sample size, David. So, you know, we're, we're talking about one round of games, but I think there's something in that. It's something... And and it's the difference between training and, and, and match-based injuries. We know from all the audit of injuries that we look at that you're 10 times more likely to get a must injury in a match than you are in training. Um, and I think going back to what we've talked about, this is going to be the big dilemma, this catch-22 that Sarah mentioned before for, for coaching staff, is that if you're 
um, too conservative in your training. So this short window of training that they have, this three, four week window of training they have before they go back into competition. If you're too conservative with that, you may not get the injuries in training, but you line yourself up more exposed for injuries in, 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 in the matches. Uh, and vice versa, if you go too aggressive too early with these deconditioned players, then you're more likely to pick up the injuries uh, in, in, in training. So it's, it's a real tricky um, position for clubs to be in with their players. That's incredibly delicate and it's interesting reading some reports in the in the newspapers there was a piece in the times saying that a team like liverpool will have to be really careful because of their gegen pressing model their high intensity pressing style of football and i know of a couple of managers who play that sort of brand of football who have had concerns about coming back too quickly because they feel a personal responsibility for the fitness of these boys it's on their shoulders because they need to train them up to the level that they want them to play at in these matches there's a lot at stake and if they suffer a bad injury well they could be staring at some you know personal guilt but but as a wider issue um losing that player or multiple players for for the crucial run-in but also a period of next season so can you give us a bit of insight into what type of training these clubs will be doing as we speak and going forward I think the first thing is when the players come back in normally in a normal pre-season you'd spend two full days of uh, of testing the players so that would be a combination of tests some lab-based tests vo2 max testing on the treadmill blood lactate testing some gym-based tests for strength flexibility their movement patterns um, field-based tests obviously for their speed and agility and that gives you an idea of your starting point with players and it helps you to then maybe identify which players may have an injury risk going forward because everyone will be different the players will be at a different starting point when they come back for any pre-season but particularly where, where they're coming back from now and I think it's really important for for clubs to be able to identify who may be at risk at that, at that early stage and, and to get a general feel for the club and then what they'll start with, which they have been starting already, is mostly sort of straightforward conditioning, um, which will be the straight line, linear type type movements, and then quickly getting into multi-directional movement um, with and without the ball. And there will be desperate coaches, managers will be desperate to get back into this sort of phase two where they can get lots of bodies around each other, where they don't have to distance, where they can really start to work on um, possession-based drills, um, and then the more technical aspects, crossing, finishing, and then gradually ramp that up into into bigger areas of training um, and to a level where you can then start to play sort of full-scale practice matches and try and get that in before you go back into um, obviously the, the full-scale matches which they will do shortly. And all within certain uh, health restrictions of course and the, you know we're going to have to get to a point where teams have to train for set pieces which I'm told involves about 16 to 17 players in the box at the same time so all of what you're explaining has to be caveated by this gradual resumption of um, physical contact and encounters between the players which is a, an element they've never experienced before. Now, it's a challenge, I think, for everyone at the club, coaches, the medical staff, the conditioning staff, the players, the sort of administrative staff all the way around it. I think, and it's it's going to be a big distraction for them. I think the whole, you know, they've got enough on their plate already, but the testing for COVID, um, the restrictions they have to have in place, not just in terms of numbers and contact of players, but just in terms of the process they go through from, you know, as soon as you arrive at the training ground to getting dressed, where you get dressed, your nutrition, how you prepare for training, uh, are you able to have, you know, medical treatment pre-training or during training? There's so many 
distractions and um, you know new processes that they've got to go through, as well as actually concentrating on the business of trying to you know train properly and 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 build that 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 side up. But I think David, I think the the, the big the reason we we know that match injuries um, uh, provide so many uh, the stats for match injuries are much higher than for training is. Obviously, just the, the intensity of the, uh, the, the 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 games versus training, but also the the, the distances involved. So mostly, training will be small sided games, small area possession drills. Um, and I think it's a challenge for managers to get or coaches to get those areas as big as possible, as safely as possible, um, as, as as quickly as possible. So, you know, in a forty by twenty meter area or, or a sixty by forty meter area you'll only be able to achieve a certain speed within that distance um, and that will only expose your muscles to a certain amount of force. Once you go into match play, you know, your players will be sprinting 30, 40, 50 metres in one go. Um, so they'll achieve higher speeds. And that really is a challenge where you where players are much more exposed to muscle injury. And that's something that, you know, you need to work into your training really quite quickly to, 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 to prepare them for that. The spectacle, Sarah, is something that you touched upon in your piece and be really interested to hear Luke's view on it as well. Sarah, what's the game going to look like at the start? Maybe not as polished as it might do in a few weeks after the resumption. I'm really interested in in whether you know teams like Liverpool are going to be able to play the way that we're used to seeing them play from the start. Yes, they're partly rested, but also have they got have they got that those foundations in place to keep up the intensity of their play for 90 minutes? Five six weeks normal preseason. There are many clubs or many players who are still not at their peak by anywhere near at day one of the, the, the match season. And some clubs will just use that time almost to, to play themselves, or some players will use that time to play themselves into the season. And it will be sort of October time where they'll start to, to, to hit their peak you know, fitness. It's, it's such a different game now that there's a mini season based over sort of six weeks, nine games over six weeks, that there is going to be a pressure to hit the ground running on day one and the lesson from Germany is that those the stats weren't a million miles off what you'd normally expect so if you, the ability to uh, to achieve your uh, outputs that you had previously for a one-off game I think will be there like Sarah says the, the difficulty will be is to be able to sustain that so within a couple of weeks you'll be back into midweek games and then can you manage that situation where you can sustain a high physical outputs uh, through three games in, in, in a week. Uh, and particularly, I think you touched on it earlier with, with teams like Liverpool uh, who are going to look to play that sort of high press out of possession game. Um, are you going to be able to, 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 to sustain that in game? So I think it'll be interesting to see you know what that, that looks like. What sort of pressures are medical departments going to be coming under now? What sort of conflicts with players who maybe don't want to come back to playing, players who are anxious to do more than they're permitted to be doing, uh, pressures from above at executive level or from the head coach or manager towards the medical department. Never have medical departments been in a more critical uh, position than they are now. I think it's, it's, there's probably a distinction between the sort of the COVID aspect to it and the football conditioning uh, medical aspect to it. I think the COVID aspect is very much it's on the clubs and the organisations to have those rules and those principles in place and to, to set that up. Um, and obviously that's run at a, you know, a higher level from government down and, and then it's up to, to clubs to, to adhere to that. I think the, 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 the pressure clubs are going to have, particularly those with teams 
not so much with those mid-table teams, but with teams at both ends of the table who have something to fight for. You know, managers are going to be uh, desperate to hit the ground running. They're going to want players available from day one. Um, and there's just so many, you know, as we've seen, you know, throughout, there's just so many agendas involved in this situation. So, you know, you'll have a player out of contract, um, which is a whole issue in itself in terms of, is he really going to want to push himself if he has a, a niggle or is he going to want to protect himself so that he doesn't end the season injured? Um, and, and so there'll be pressures from everywhere. And I think it's just as, as a medical staff, it's just important to be aware of those pressures as you start off. Um, and, and it just really highlights the importance of an integrated team. So, you know, a manager will want to be doing his tactical work from day one. The coaching staff will want to do their technical work the um, fitness staff will want to do their conditioning work. So it's just really important that everyone's on the same page of that because time is so so limited. If everyone's doing their own thing, it's, it's going to be tricky. And I, more than ever, it needs an integrated approach to, to that management. Luke, fascinating. Thank you. Sarah, likewise, and brilliant piece, which people can read still on The Athletic. Thanks very much. Well, I took to Twitter to ask for your questions and you guys have delivered. So I'm going to dip into the mailbag now and try and respond to a few of them. Gareth Cartwright asks, were there any indications in the project restart plans around what expected level of positive tests there would be in the first week? It would be interesting to know whether the numbers are trending above or below what was expected at this time, if so. Well, I don't know what the expectation was of the Premier League, but we do know what was seen in Germany, which was 10 positive tests at the first round uh, of testing. The Premier League saw six. Germany had conducted more tests than the Premier League. So actually the percentage in the Premier League was slightly higher. But what I do know is the Premier League were pretty satisfied with that. Of course, you want there to be no positive tests, but at the first time of asking, I think that's pretty impressive going. It gave them confidence to crack on with the phase one return to training procedure. And then in the second round, only having two positive tests across two clubs, uh, one of which we know to be Bournemouth, given that the first round was six positive tests across three clubs, while the clubs were different in the second time round, which shows that five clubs have got players uh, and coaching staff self-isolating, eight of them in total. I think the trajectory was positive. They're moving again in the right direction. And as I mentioned earlier, I do expect phase two to be approved by the Premier League clubs and contact to resume. So while we don't know what the exact expectations were, Gareth, I do think there is a level of satisfaction while, of course, the Premier League is striving to get the number as low as possible and in an ideal world down to zero positive tests. As things stand, a positive test just means isolation of that one person or whoever tests positive for a period of seven days and the social distancing uh, rules that should be adhered to in the phase one protocols means that nobody else should need to self-isolate. A question from Babs, is there a specific threshold of positive tests which could trigger unrest or a delay to project restart? Well, I've put this to the Premier League and as we've kind of explained already, we're, we're still on phase one. And so the return to playing protocols as opposed to the return to training protocols, they're still being worked on. We're still needing to finalise what return to playing would look like 
and also how positive tests would be dealt with. Um, I think we'll gain some clarity on that this week with meetings, as mentioned, on Wednesday and Thursday, really important meetings. Um, now, there is something in the current rule book about not being able to fulfil a fixture and a decision is then taken by the board. Um, and I think back to incidents like the Tottenham-West Ham game on the final day of the season in, was it 2006, uh, which was dubbed Lasagna Gate. But we've never been in this situation before. We've never dealt with an environment like this. And to underline, at the moment, there is not a specific number of um, players being lost to self-isolation, the illness that would trigger uh, a fixture to be cancelled. I think those are all things that still need to be worked out and they're very pressing issues um, because it is a, a potential scenario that could arise. Akash Vijay asks, Coutinho, he's been linked to Arsenal. Is there any news about that? I've seen plenty of reports like you and... I can only express my position as things stand. And that's that I have no information on this. I, I don't know anything about it. So if it is happening, it's beyond my knowledge. That's not to say it isn't. It's just that I don't know anything about it if it is. We do know the links that, that are apparent between Arsenal's head of football, Raul Sanlehi, their technical director, Edu, and Felipe Coutinho's agent, Kia Jurabchian. So we've seen a number of deals already done between those parties and that's in part I'm sure why the links have arisen whether there has been actual contact and conversations around uh, possibly bringing Coutinho in from Barcelona to the Emirates Stadium I don't know we have heard these suggestions before in January Tottenham were also linked to the sports outsider asks what is the Arsenal situation on William Saliba uh, since the French league finished Will he be training with the squad only or playing as well? Well, my understanding of this situation is it's fairly complicated uh, because William Saliba, under the terms of his loan contract, is still with St Etienne uh, until the date it finishes. Um, there is then the issue of people returning to the UK having to uh, quarantine uh, by the sounds of the government guidance for 14 days. Uh, he won't be able to play for Arsenal this season. Uh, I think that's been pretty clear and, and well reported. A few other issues involved. He's had a family bereavement recently and um, so that's very unpleasant and of course he would need time and respect over that. Uh, I don't think that will cause a particular problem in, in coming over to move to London as planned and, and take up his uh, next step of his career with Arsenal. Um, but that, I guess, is a bit of a sad issue uh, that he's had to encounter, especially at such a young age. Um, will he be training with the squad? Uh, I guess we'll have to wait and see what, what happens in terms of his arrival, uh, his fitness condition, uh, whether Arsenal would want somebody who hasn't been with them until this point uh, training with the main group, whether even the season is going to be completed. So there are too many factors still to be determined around that. Uh, we don't even know what Arsenal's plans are. Is he going to be incorporated into the first team set up for next season? Will he go out on loan again? I think many of us would imagine that he will be incorporated because of what we've seen of him so far, the quality and potential, but he's still a very young boy. Arsenal have a vast number of central defenders and presumably they'll need to get rid of some of them this summer. We know that uh, some of them, including Rob Holding, Socrates, uh, and maybe Skodra Mustafi as well, uh, Arsenal will listen to offers for. But it's going to be incredibly 
an incredibly difficult and unpredictable market and we don't know whether they will be able to do what they want to do. But Saliba will be moving to London this summer, so we'll just have to wait and see what happens there. Okay, that's it. Don't forget, now is a great time to subscribe to The Athletic and take advantage of the 90-day free trial that ends this Thursday, the 28th of May. Just go to theathletic.com forward slash Ornstein and Chapman. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.